It is dark, but you are light. It has shackles, but God has set you free. Over 1,800 years ago, Carthage was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. Even then, it was ancient, its history stretching back into the centuries before Christ. At one time, Rome and Carthage had been two hostile powers in the Western Mediterranean. Rome defeated Carthage and destroyed it, but Carthage rose to be the center of Roman power in North Africa. Today, the modern city of Tunis draws tourists and scholars to reflect on its past and think about the men and women who lived here long ago. One of those men was Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus, the man we know as Tertullian. Tertullian's father was a centurion. The centurions were lower rank officers who were the backbone of the Roman army. Strong, steady, brave, reliable. This centurion had made up his mind that his son was going to excel in life, and that must start with his superb education. In ea provincia, provincia, magnae. The young Quintus Tertullian was a privileged child. He was a Roman citizen. He was taught to read and write in Latin. His education covered the study of literature and law. He learned rhetoric, the art of public speaking. He was trained to serve the Roman Empire, the Roman gods, and the Roman emperor. Rome had some emperors who were foolish and some who were cruel. But now, at long last, it seemed that Rome had the ideal ruler who combined strength with wisdom, who was faithful to the ancient ideals and the ancient religion of the Roman gods. The emperor was Marcus Aurelius, a military leader and philosopher. Rome was at war on several fronts with the Parthians from Persia, the Marcomanni and the Quadi from beyond the river Danube in Central Europe, and with the Sarmatians beyond the Black Sea. Marcus Aurelius was victorious over and over again. But there was another side to Marcus Aurelius. Faced with angry mobs and conniving judges who were persecuting Christians in the Rhone Valley of France, this emperor, civilized and cultured, a philosopher and statesman who believed in Roman law and justice, ordered that citizens should be beheaded for no other crime than being Christians, and that those Christians who were not citizens should die by torture. In the year 180, Marcus Aurelius died, 
and was followed by his son, the Emperor Commodus. <laughs> Commodus was a violent and crazy tyrant oh, who liked to play the part of a gladiator and believed he was the incarnation of the demigod Hercules. Terrifying and wasteful, Commodus was assassinated. In less than six months, the empire passed through the hands of two more emperors before a new leader emerged. Meanwhile, in Carthage, Tertullian had completed his education. People had enjoyed the benefits of protection and prosperity under Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher-emperor. And after the recent chaos, no doubt they hoped the new emperor, Septimius Severus, would bring back law and order. Tertullian believed in the rule of law, Roman law. Tertullian had been brought up to worship the same Roman gods that were venerated by his parents and most other people. But he also saw one group of citizens that did not fit into this picture, the Christians. And the Christians paid a very high price for being different. They were ridiculed and persecuted for their faith. There were two ways a Roman could look at his fellow citizens who were Christian. On one side, there was suspicion and fear. North Africa, with its abundant harvests, was the breadbasket of Rome, and people believed that the success of their crops depended on the goodwill of the gods. When the Christians in North Africa would not worship them, would the gods cause the crops to fail and bring disaster on everyone? On the other side, the Christians had committed no crime, no violent acts, no horrors. Innocent men and women were being persecuted, tortured and killed. For what? And how calmly they met their fate. How often they died praying for those who killed them. Why were these people who led such good lives being humiliated? Was this Roman justice? How Tertullian became a Christian, we do not know. The details of his journey to faith are lost to history. What we do know is that somehow Tertullian became a believer in Jesus Christ. Married but childless, Tertullian started to write. In North Africa and the whole Western Mediterranean area, Latin was the language of the people and of the state, and it was the language of law, Roman law. Tertullian was the first major Christian writer who used Latin rather than Greek. This would be a letter to encourage his fellow Christians who were in prison. First then, blessed ones, do not grieve the Holy Spirit who has entered the prison with you. If he had not entered with you, neither would you have been there today. Certainly the prison is the house of the devil where he keeps his family. But you have come into the prison in order to tread him underfoot in his own house. 
It is dark, but you are light. It has shackles, but God has set you free. The prison serves the Christian as the desert did for the prophets. The Lord himself spent time in seclusion in order to pray more freely, to be free of the world. For Tertullian, once the Christian man or woman learns to see prison as a challenge and an opportunity to draw closer to God, then the experience and discomfort of being imprisoned for the name of Christ loses its power to bring fear to the person of faith. The accusations made against Christians were ridiculous. Yet at the time, many people believed there must be something behind them. The Christians were accused of worshipping a donkey's head. On a wall from the second century on the Palatine Hill in Rome, there is a graffito cartoon showing a cross and on it a crucified man with the head of a donkey. In front stands a man raising his hand in worship. And the caption in Greek reads, Alexa Menos worships his God. Because Christians ate bread together in memory of Christ's death on the cross, remembering his words, this is my body, broken for you, some Romans said that Christians were cannibals eating human flesh, perhaps that of a baby. Because Christians called each other brother and sister, and they also believed that they should marry other Christians rather than unbelievers, they were accused of incest marrying their literal brothers and sisters, which of course they would never do. Because they would not take an oath to the spirit of the emperor, they were accused of disloyalty. Tertullian responded to these attacks with two books in defense of the Christians, both of them written in the year 197. One of them is called Ad Nationes, to the nations. The other is called the Apologeticus. In the sense of the word apology, this means a reasoned argument in defense against accusations. You dream that a donkey's head is our God, and now there's one who thinks we worship the cross. Others, it is clear, politely and more reasonably, believe the sun is our God. What we worship is the one God. He is invisible, yet seen, beyond our understanding, yet through grace made known. He is so true and so great. Persecution of Christians by Romans had been going on for over a hundred years before Tertullian, starting with the Emperor Nero, and it would continue for another hundred years. Many Christians lost all their property to the Roman authorities, separated from their families, put in prison, beheaded, crucified, burned as human torches, put in the arena for the amusement of the crowd to be torn apart by dogs and wild animals. But the most popular thing was to feed them to the lions. The Romans believed that Christians offended the gods, so that everything that went wrong was the fault of the Christians. If the river Tiber rises to the walls, if the Nile does not rise to give water to the fields, if the sky does not rain, 
If there is an earthquake, if there is a famine, if there is a plague, immediately the cry goes up, the Christians to the lion. <laughs> All of them to one lion. We Christians have been here for such a short time. It seems like yesterday, and yet we are everywhere. All the places you have, cities, tenements, forts, towns, markets, even the military camp, tribes, town councils, the palace, the senate, the forum, we have left nothing to you but your temples. You torture us, you twist us on the rack, condemn us, destroy us. Our innocence is surely proved by your injustice. Nothing whatsoever is advanced by your more excellent cruelties. Rather, it is an attraction to our way. The more you mow us down, the more we multiply. The blood of Christians is seed. One of Tertullian's most famous statements is this. Christians are made, not born. What did Tertullian mean by this? Well, very simply, being born in a Christian family and being given a Christian name does not make anyone a true Christian. Living in a so-called Christian country does not make the people living there Christians. So what does? Being a Christian requires a conscious, personal commitment to believe in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. Then God comes into that person's life and transforms them by his own power and presence. Real Christians are made by God. They are even ready to die for the true and real God. And that's what Italian meant and it was his own experience. In his lifetime, Tertullian had seen good emperors and bad. Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher-soldier, but a persecutor. Commodus, the crazed tyrant. <laughs> Didius Julianus, the corrupt billionaire. Septimius Severus, the persecutor of Christians. What then was Tertullian's attitude to emperors, the men in power? In the Apologeticus, he describes how Christians pray for the emperor. Christians pray looking up there to heaven with hands outstretched because we are not guilty, with heads uncovered because we do not blush with shame, and yes, without being told what to say, because we pray from the heart. We are always intercessors, praying for all the emperors. We pray for them for a long life, a secure empire, a safe house, brave armies, a faithful senate, a good people, a peaceful world, and all that a man or Caesar would wish for. But I will not call the emperor God, because, for example, I cannot lie. I would not dare to mock him, and I say that he himself would not wish to be called God. If he is a man, 
It is in his interest as a man to acknowledge God. He has the satisfaction of being called emperor. And it is a great name too that God gives to him. He who says he is God denies he is emperor. Because if he is not a man, he cannot be an emperor. The emperors were persecuting the Christians. But the Christians were praying for the emperor, not against him. And they were not angry or wanting revenge. And Tertullian says it is really in the emperor's interest to recognize that God is over all. God is sovereign, not man, not even the emperor. Tertullian also describes a Christian meeting or assembly. And it was important for him to do this because the average person, whether in North Africa or anywhere else in the empire, had no concept of the church. In the Roman world, if a person wanted to pray to a god or goddess, they might go to a temple and bring some kind of gift and make their request for protection or prosperity or whatever it was they wanted. And that was it. The head of the Roman state religion was the emperor himself. His religious position reinforced his political power. And the Roman priests were often drawn from families that had political connections and money. But there was no fellowship or support group or study of scripture as the Christians had. So the Christian practice of getting together just to pray and worship God, to be blessed by the awareness of God's presence and to study God's word was a strange and new idea for the Romans. Tertullian had to describe and explain what the church really was and how it functioned. We are a body bound together by religious consciousness and unity of discipline and the bond of hope. We meet together as an assembly to come to God in prayer. We assemble to read the books of God. With the holy words, we nourish faith, build hope, strengthen confidence, and equally confirm discipline by teaching good habits. Our leaders are elders of proven character who have attained this honor not by paying money for some position, no, but by the witness of their testimony. For the things of God are not for sale at any price. Even if there is a kind of money box, it is not made up of fees as if religion was a business contract. No one is compelled. It is done as a voluntary offering. Our dinner shows what it is by its name. It is called by the Greek name for love. No one takes their place until first tasting prayer to God. What is eaten is enough to satisfy hunger. What is drunk is enough to serve the modest. In the same way, the meal concludes with prayer. This meeting of Christians reasonably deserves to be called illegal if it is like illegal meetings. But when honest people, good people get together 
When the pious and the innocent assemble, that is not to be called a faction, but rather like a meeting of the Senate. The Senate and people of Rome. Sonatas Populusque Romanus. It represented all the dignity, authority, and legitimacy of the state. The Christian community sought to bring blessing to Rome, not to make problems. And they did not represent a foreign power. They were the people, whom the Senate itself should be glad to represent. In the Roman world, which included the Mediterranean coast of North Africa, there were various cultures, each with its own rich history. But Roman law and the Roman way of doing things predominated. When it came to the family and marriage, the father of the family, the paterfamilias, had absolute power. When a child was born, the midwife placed the baby on the floor in front of the father. If he picked up the baby, the newborn was recognized as the son or daughter of the family. If he did not take up the baby, the newborn would be exposed outside the house or beside the road, perhaps at a temple or a city dump. If slave traders were going by, they could collect these children to be raised and sold as slaves. The Christians and the Jews, who were strongly opposed both to abortion and child exposure, were regarded as strange by the rest of the population. Again, Tertullian writes to contrast this practice with the Christian beliefs and reasoning. How many do you think of those standing around and panting for the blood of Christians, even of those most just magistrates, most severe in judging us as Christians, how many shall I touch in their consciences who kill their own children? If indeed there is any difference in the kind of murder, then certainly to choke out the breath in water to expose to cold and starvation and to the dogs is the more cruel way to do it. An adult person would rather choose death by the sword. But for us Christians, murder is always forbidden, even from conception in the womb. While yet the blood is being drawn upon within the human being, it is unlawful to destroy it. To prevent one being born is just a quicker form of murder, nor is it any different to snatch away a life that has been born, or to destroy one as it comes to birth. He is a man who is destined to become a man. Yes, even the whole fruit is in the seed. The whole fruit is in the seed. As a trained thinker, Tertullian also wrote about the Christian faith, about what we believe. The Bible gives us historical accounts of how people experienced the intervention of God in their lives. 
poetry expressing that experience, writings of wisdom reflecting what God desires, prophecy that brings God's word into human lives, showing his purpose and often proclaiming future events that God had determined would come to pass, and letters that address specific situations with God's answers. But nowhere does it try to give us a philosophical analysis of the nature of God. The Bible shows us God in action. It is not concerned with explaining God or holding him up for us to examine like an object. When we read his word, God leaves it open to us to form ideas and ways to speak about him. Yet, how can we, as human beings, living in space and time, possibly understand the infinite and eternal God? One of the most difficult subjects to write about was the Holy Trinity, the very essence and nature of God's being. What do we read in the Bible? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus commanded, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, the Apostle Paul gives this blessing to the church. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Tertullian knew God's word. He knew many places in the Bible where God is described as Father. But Jesus is also spoken of as God. And clearly the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is God and not just some lesser spirit such as an angel. So do Christians believe in three gods? That's not Christianity. There is only one God. Then do Christians believe that there is only one God, but that he shows himself in three different ways at different times, sometimes as Father, sometimes in Jesus, and sometimes as the Holy Spirit? No, no, not at all. As Tertullian looked at it, he came up with a word in Latin, Trinitas. The Latin word for one is unus. The abstract noun from that is unitas, meaning oneness. The Latin word for three is tres, and the word for triple or threefold is trinus. So Tertullian used the word trinitas, meaning three oneness, to refer to God. What he meant is that God is one, only one God but that God eternally exists. He lives in a threeness of being revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tertullian talked about light. You can see that sunlight comes from the sun, but the sunlight you see in your room is in a sunbeam, and when it strikes an object and becomes a point of light, that too is sunlight. He saw that even in the first book of Moses, the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is in the plural. It expresses the plural of majesty, 
But Tertullian saw the beauty in the word goes beyond the idea of royalty into a threeness of being. Tertullian recognized that Jesus is one person. He is not two persons in one body, but he does have two natures, not confused, but conjoined. He is perfectly man and perfectly God, each nature preserving its own qualities in perfect union. Tertullian did not invent this as his own idea. He responded to what has been revealed about Christ through scripture. He knew that the mystery of the divine was always beyond him. Indeed, Tertullian argued passionately and logically that nobody would ever have come up with such an idea. Nobody would want to invent it. Tertullian was a man of his time. He stood up to confront injustice and the persecution of Christians. He stood against violence of any kind. He cherished the sanctity of human life from conception to the grave. He wrestled with difficult theological questions with integrity and, and thoughtfulness to help believers understand and know God. And as one of the greatest writers of North Africa, he gave a defense of Christianity that has impacted every generation of Christian believers from then until now. His love for the word of God and of the rights of all people continues to challenge us today.